it's actually non-scientific in a way to not be open to certain perspectives. Like in my mind, there is something going on with synchronicity. Not always. Sometimes people are reaching for meaning where none exists. Sometimes strange things do happen, but there have been enough examples of really compelling synchronicities that suggest that there is something more going on. Hi, I'm Kaz Tanner and welcome to Further Reaches. In this podcast, we're going to explore what lies beyond the edge of our current understanding about consciousness, the constructs of reality, and how we can build a better world. I speak with people who are pushing boundaries, who are investigating the profound mysteries of human existence, who are challenging the status quo in some way, and who are radically rethinking what it means for us to thrive on Earth as individuals and as a collective. This week, my guest is Bethany Butzer. Bethany is an author, speaker, researcher and lecturer in the fields of positive psychology and transpersonal psychology. She received her PhD in psychology from the University of Western Ontario in Canada, and she was a postdoctoral research fellow at Harvard Medical School. Currently, she is a lecturer in psychology at the University of New York in Prague, and she is a core faculty member for the Aleph Trust MSc program in consciousness, spirituality, and transpersonal psychology. I talked to Bethany about her research on synchronicities. What makes something a synchronicity instead of just a coincidence? What are potential explanations for how synchronicities work beyond them being just down to random chance? And how synchronicities could perhaps point to the fundamental nature of consciousness? And maybe that's why experiencing synchronicities can feel so meaningful, because they give the experiencer a felt sense of the interconnectedness that underlies everything. I also ask Bethany about her fascinating research on bias in the scientific community towards studies on parapsychology, which is also sometimes called anomalous cognition. This includes phenomena such as extrasensory perception, telepathy, precognition, and psychokinesis, which is manipulating something with the power of the mind, for example, affecting a random number generator. Anyway, let's dive into the episode. I love exploring these types of topics, and I hope you enjoy the interview as much as I did. I'm so excited to welcome Bethany Butzer to the podcast. Bethany, welcome to Further Reaches. Thanks so much, Kaz. I'm happy to be here. So I'd love to start with you telling us a little bit about yourself, your journey, and what are you currently most passionate about exploring in your research? Sure. I'm a professor, a lecturer. My background is in psychology, uh, clinical social psychology, as well as positive psychology. And I teach at a university in Prague, at the University of New York in Prague, as well as for the Aleph Trust, which is a university in the UK. And I teach on topics related to consciousness, spirituality, and transpersonal psychology. And I would say that 
those are my main passions these days, especially around aspects of consciousness in terms of synchronicity. You know, what does synchronicity perhaps have to tell us about the nature of consciousness? And I'm also interested in parapsychology or psi or psychic phenomena, as it's called a few different things. And I'm interested in what you might call meta-science. So the, the ways in which we approach science within the field of psychology and any biases that can exist, particularly towards topics like parapsychology and transpersonal psychology that tend to be a little bit more on the fringes of mainstream science. Uh, so I'm Canadian, but I currently live in Prague. I've lived here for around six years. And I think that's about it. I could go deeper into my journey of how I got here, but perhaps I'll just leave it at that for now, unless you want me to continue. Yeah, that was great. I feel like you really embody like the meeting point of traditional science with exploring you know the unknown or like the mysteries of consciousness so I'd love to hear a bit more about the transition between the two like how did you decide to move towards exploring things like synchronicities and consciousness hmm. I think that my personal journey actually reflects a collective journey as well I think that all of us, our personal journeys reflect the collective. And I would say at a, at a personal level, I was trained in a very mainstream university. So I, I went to university for 10 years. I went from kindergarten to PhD without a single break. And I was very much entrenched in the mainstream materialist scientific paradigm. In other words, the paradigm that emphasizes quantitative research, so research with numbers and hard facts, quote-unquote, supposedly objective and neutral science. I was very much trained in that perspective. And in the 10 years that I spent getting a PhD in psychology, transpersonal psychology and parapsychology were rarely, if ever, mentioned. And if they were mentioned, they were mentioned as basically being garbage, like as examples of bad science. And I believed that to some extent. I just kind of continued going along. And eventually, I started to realize that what I had learned in my training conflicted with many things that I had experienced personally. And I've experienced many really powerful synchronicities and parapsychological phenomena that that the scientific models that I was being trained in just simply could not explain. And I had a really hard time trying to reconcile this. It, it was as if my professional life was gaslighting my personal life in a way and telling me that my experiences were not real and that they didn't exist. And I struggled with this. And to be honest, I still do to some extent because I still work uh, in a very mainstream university in Prague. and. In, in my professional life, I don't want to appear like I'm not scientific, uh, but I, I could no longer ignore my personal experience. And so I started trying to bring that more into what I was studying scientifically. And I ended up actually completing year one of the Aleph Trust master's program in consciousness, spirituality, and transpersonal psychology as a way to 
give myself a bit more training and knowledge in the science behind these phenomenon. And the reason why I started my answer by saying that it's a personal and collective transformation is because at a very broad level, I think that most of this or a lot of this transformation for me or this journey has been about bringing together masculine and feminine aspects of consciousness, of reality, of myself. And I think as a planet, we're trying to do that as well. We've been dominated by a largely masculine paradigm for a few thousand years. And by masculine, I don't necessarily mean male. I, I mean masculine in a broader sense, as far as linear, materialistic, A to B cause effect kind of thinking. Uh, whereas feminine approaches are not necessarily just by women or females, but they tend to be more nonlinear intuitive, body-based ways of knowing. Um, and so I've been within my own life and also professionally trying to integrate these masculine and feminine aspects to a greater extent. Mm, yes. I would love to talk more about um, materialism as a belief system and its limits on our approach to science, uh, maybe a bit later in the podcast, but just to stick with your interest in synchronicities for now, I think it might be helpful to define what we mean by synchronicity. Um, so you have an article that's going to be coming out in the Journal of um, Consciousness Studies, and you talk about how a synchronicity is a coincidence, but they're not necessarily the same thing. So could you explain what makes a synchronicity unique from other types of coincidences? Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. And, and actually, I realized, Kaz, the, the version of the synchronicity article that I sent to you is the preprint. So it looks like it's not published, but it actually has been published. So it is now available in the Journal of Consciousness Studies. Oh, um, great. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it is, although you have to subscribe to the journal or be part of a university that has access to it. Uh, but, uh, you know, academia still works in some of those traditional ways. But um, this question that you asked is a really good one, and it's a tough one that I even struggle with because Jung, Carl Jung originally coined the term synchronicity, and he largely talked about it as a mental phenomenon that then happens in close proximity, timing-wise, to a phenomenon out in the material world. Now, others have, have defined various types of synchronicities or coincidences. Um, what I would say is that what makes something a synchronicity, there's a, a few different aspects. One is this timing aspect where there's these two, we'll just call them things for now, these two things that happen in close timing proximity to each other. But close can actually sometimes be years. So that's a little bit tricky as well. But there's this timing aspect. There's an aspect of um, meaning. Meaning is really the key thing. So coming back to your question of what makes perhaps a synchronicity different from a, just a coincidence is that a synchronicity often is something that's very meaningful for the individual. So the co-occurrence of these two or more factors is meaningful in some way. Um, so I, I would say there's, there's more to it, but we can dig down into very, very uh, fine-grained details. Um, Bernard Bateman, for example, has come up with 
multiple different types of what you might call synchronicities. But for our purposes, I don't know if we need to necessarily dig that deep, except to say that there's often a mental phenomenon that coincides with a material phenomenon. And that coincidence or co-occurrence of factors is meaningful for the individual in some way. Um, But I will just briefly add to that, that unlike what Jung originally proposed, there are some who suggest that the initial initial phenomenon does not need to be mental. It could be two external phenomenon that coincide with each other. Um, so, to, so to just really make it brief, the key thing I think that really makes something a synchronicity is meaning. Um, it's meaningful. And I guess the, uh, one other thing that's just coming to me now is that it seems improbable or impossible. There's no uh, known materialistic cause effect reason why these two or more factors would be happening in in close timing proximity to each other. So there's the meaning, there's the uh, mental and physical being somehow connected, and then um, the improbability uh, that makes it notable for the person. So they really notice the the factors that are happening in co-occurrence with each other. I'd love to hear some personal examples of synchronicities in your life, because I think real world examples are really helpful for people to like wrap their mind around like what a synchronicity is. Hmm. Sure. I have, I have two that I could mention. Uh, I'll start with, with one that's maybe a little bit shorter. Um, but, uh, and I mentioned this in, in the article as well, so you'll be aware of it. So I'll share two so that I share one that you aren't familiar with. Um, but the first one that I, is the most, at least most powerful recent example of a synchronicity that I've experienced is Uh, A couple of years ago, I was at a retreat with one of my spiritual teachers. And at retreats, I always log my dreams because I find that I have really powerful dreams during retreats. And I logged a dream that I, I was in an apartment and a Rottweiler dog bit me in the arm. And I was injured and I was crying and I was asking for help, but no one came to help me. And I thought nothing of this dream, really, although it did come up at the retreat. I talked about it with some people, but then I completely forgot about it. And around three months later, my mom was out for a walk in our neighborhood, a very safe, (laughs) suburban, small town neighborhood. And a Rottweiler dog came out of nowhere. It wasn't on a leash and it bit her in the arm and she was bleeding profusely. And she had to, the, the dog's owner was nowhere in sight. and she had to walk home holding her arm above her head and she was crying and bleeding and no one stopped to help her along the way. And she eventually went to the hospital and she was fine. And she actually sued the dog's owner. She found out who the owner was and, uh, and, and won the settlement. So that was great. Um, but, and actually when this happened, I was, I was of course worried about my mom, but I'd completely forgotten about this dream And it wasn't until maybe two months after that, that I was going through my old journal and I came across this dream and I thought, wow, of course it wasn't my mom in the dream. It was me. But still, if you think about the millions upon millions of things that I could dream about in in any given night, what are the odds that I would dream? I even had the the type of dog down Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that it was a Rottweiler. It bit me in the arm, which is exactly where my mom, it bit me in the same place in my arm where my mom was bit. Um, And in the dream, I was crying and and no one was helping me. Um, 
So, you know, to me now, but this is something that's interesting as far as definitions of synchronicity as well, because some would say that that dream of mine was a form of precognition or psychic phenomena, psychic ability. Uh, others, like at least Jung, would conceptualize that as a synchronicity because it's a mental event that later corresponded with an external phenomenon. Um, but still, to me, it was a pretty powerful example. And even if you want to talk statistics and probabilities, the probability of me having that dream in such close proximity to what happened to my mom is pretty unlikely. Mm-hmm. And it's so good you actually had written it down in your journal because I feel like if you would have just said, oh, I had a dream about this you know, a few months ago, um, that's like less tangible, but you actually had like written proof with the date. So it helps like validate it in a way. Exactly. Exactly. And that's what, this is something that's been found. And that I talk about in the article is that altered states of consciousness, like dreaming or meditation, or even psychedelic experiences seem to, at least according to some reports, facilitate things like psi. Um, it's almost as if when we calm our consciousness, our individual consciousness down, we can access a larger or more fundamental consciousness as well, which I find really interesting. Um, but I'll share one more example with you if you'd like. Yeah, I'd love to hear the other one. Okay, so I'll, I'll make this one brief. But this one happened when I was in high school, so I don't exactly have the, the written confirmation the way I did with the first one, but it always stuck with me because I was out with my friend. I was maybe 15 or 16 years old. And I was out on Halloween. I was dressed up trying to get candy (laughs) because I look very young for my age. So I was still able to get candy. And my friend and I were walking down the street. It was dark and um, a a young man rode by on his bicycle. And I said to my friend, oh, there's James. You know, I wonder, I, I, I recognized my friend James. Now, James is someone who he wasn't a close friend of mine, but I'd been to some parties that he was at. I knew who he was. I'd I'd had some conversations with him. He went to a different high school from me and he actually lived around 20 minutes outside of town in the country, but he rode by on his bicycle. And I said to my friend, like, oh, I wonder what James is doing in town. Like, you know, why is he's here? Why he's riding around on a bicycle because he wasn't from my neighborhood or anything. And then I went to school the next day and another friend of mine who was, was best friends with James, uh, he he looked terrible. And, and I asked him what was wrong. And he said, um, our friend James, he died last night. And I was like, what? That's impossible. I saw James last night. He rode by me on a bicycle. And my friend was like, no, I, I was driving along and uh, and he was riding a four-wheeler in the woods. You know, these like four-wheeled, um, I don't know, vehicles, motor vehicles you can drive on mm-hmm. paths in the woods. He was driving this and uh, didn't see a fallen tree and the tree hit him in the chest uh, and collapsed his, his lungs and he died. And my friend found him. And I was just completely shocked that I I could have sworn. And I said it to my friend. So I guess there's validation in that sense that I thought, I really thought I saw him and it was right around the time even that he died. Um, so again, there's kind of that uh, timing aspect uh, that, that was going on in that particular synchronicity as well. Mm. Do you think you actually saw him on his bike or was it kind of you were seeing uh, like a vision of him or maybe like the spirit of him or do you think he actually rode by? Um, He 100% did not ride by, at least in his physical form, (laughs) because, yeah, because that would have been impossible. But 
you know, I'm not really sure. Like sometimes I just get the sense that my individual consciousness every once in a while taps into this broader field of consciousness or field in general that like picks up on something. And my, my, my senses, like the way that you and I and humans experience things, put him on a bike in front of me um, because that's how I could understand what I was tapping into. Um, you know, if I'd seen him, I don't know, if I suddenly had a break from reality and was like in the woods with him when that happened, I would have thought I'd had like a psychotic break or something. So, um, you know, I think my my body put it in a way that I could understand. It reminds me of what Rupert Sheldrake talks about with morphic resonance and talking about there being a field that we can all tap into. So, um, yeah, it's very strange that at the moment that he uh, died in that accident that you somehow saw a vision of him around the same time. Mm. Um, so when when you found out that James had actually died and you realized there was this like synchronistic um, event that had happened, like what is the feeling that you get when you realize a synchronicity has happened? And, and why do you think that synchronicities feel so meaningful? Mm. Yeah, there's often a sense of numinosity, you know, the numinous, like there's a, a you may, might get goosebumps or, or it's this momentary feeling of like, wow, I'm some things are connected in some way that I maybe don't understand. So I would say for me, it's like a numinous feeling and it's, I think, and what I propose in the article that we were talking about early, earlier is that this is is the, the the fundamental consciousness or field or the oneness, whatever you want to call it. This is its way of uh, giving us clues that it exists, and and this feeling of numinosity and like wow or awe, you might think of it, is is a signal or or a part of this clue that there's more going on in the universe than we understand. And when I say this, people in mainstream circles often assume I'm talking about God, like some sort of bearded man sitting on a fluffy white cloud. And that's not actually what I mean. I just mean that there is perhaps a connection, an interconnection, interconnectedness between all things, between mind and matter that we every once in a while tap into and we experience these moments of numinosity that show us like, wow, there's something going on, even if we don't quite know what it is. Mm. So synchronicities in a way point to, well, they could point to the fundamental nature of reality. Um, could you talk a bit more about uh, theories on the fundamental nature of reality and uh, like theories from a metaphysical perspective on how synchronicities uh, might work. Yeah, there's there's a few, quite a few different theories of. Well, obviously, there's many, many, many theories of what reality is. But when it comes to synchronicity, and even just more broadly, from mystical traditions, spiritual tradi traditions, but also some would argue quantum physics, there's some physicists who have argued this as well, that there seems to perhaps be some sort of fundamental aspect of reality that is just one. 
uh, some call it consciousness. Uh, some call it, uh, some might call it like um, the implicate order. Uh, David Bohm called it that. Uh, some call it presence or the mystery. Um, but it seems like there is some aspect of reality that is simply one, one thing. And that humans, because of our sense capacities, our sense faculties, you know, sight, smell, taste, hearing, etc., we perceive mind and matter as being separate in the same way that my cat can hear certain sounds that I can't hear. Um, and I, as a human, perceive reality as split into these physical things in front of me <clears throat> and the mental things that go on in my mind, but that perhaps that split is actually artificial, that, that that's not actually what reality is. And that instead, reality is some sort of neutral oneness that every once in a while pokes its face <laughs> into our everyday awareness through phenomenon like synchronicity. So it, it appears every now and then and giving us clues that there is this interconnection going on. And, and people describe this, like I was saying, from, from spiritual tradi traditions over thousands of years, which again, mainstream scientists tend to just like, oh, whatever. They poo-poo on that kind of thing. But you have to think about humans spending literally thousands of years in deep contemplation and coming to these realizations across spiritual traditions that had no way of communicating with each other at various points in time. And instead of just saying that that's nonsense, we could perhaps look at it as one source of information. It's not the only source of information. Um, so then again, for example, there are quantum physicists who have argued very similar points and even who, who joke that matter, like we think we know what matter is and that's what we base most of materialist science on, but that actually many physicists will say that at a very fundamental level, they aren't quite sure what matter is and it's much more mysterious than we think. Um, so, so yeah, the, the nutshell version of that is that there is perhaps some sort of oneness and that synchronicity gives us some clues about what that is. Mm. And I know in the article, you talk about how contemplative practices can perhaps help people open up to experiencing more synchronicities. Um, could you uh, tell us a little bit more about that and what people can do to perhaps uh, become more open. Mm. Yeah, and I think a, a good way to approach this question, at least from still not quite a mainstream scientific perspective, but a little bit more mainstream, is in research of parapsychology, there's now pretty strong evidence that the strongest scientific results in well-designed, well-controlled studies for parapsychological phenomenon happen when people are in some sort of an altered state of consciousness or the participants themselves are long-term meditators. So for example, there's a technique called the Gansfeld where participants in parapsychology studies are sensory deprived in a way. So there, there's covers that are put over their eyes. They have headphones that play white noise. And then, and they're led often through sort of a relaxation exercise at first, and then they engage in the study of psychic phenomenon. And that studies that use that sort of a paradigm tend to find stronger results. And 
there's also what you might call a little bit more anecdotal evidence, but it's it's still there that people, when they attend retreats, for example, like I was saying before, tend to report a lot of synchronicities around these retreats. Um, and then same with people who um, might uh, do an intentional psychedelic trip uh, will often experience synchronicities or have a brief period where um, they seem to be psychic for a period of time. And what I find really interesting about this is within the modern scientific paradigm, we really value our intellect and our rationality and our conscious mind, what we often think of as our logical conscious mind. But what seems to be the case is actually that when we quiet that down, when we loosen our grip a little bit on our our strict logical consciousness, when we allow some of that more feminine, intuitive, nonlinear aspect to come in, for example, also in dreams, that's when synchronicities and parapsychological phenomenon tend to happen more often. Um, And some might say, oh, it's just it's just wishful thinking. It's just that people who meditate are also the kinds of people who see connections between things when there's actually no connections there. But but I would suggest that this evidence from parapsychological research suggests that that's not actually the case, that there, there is something to this, to quieting the mind and therefore opening ourselves up to other factors that we might not normally perceive. And so what I would recommend is that people in whatever way that feels comfortable and safe for them, try to access an altered state of consciousness through things like meditation or even intentional dreaming, dream work. If you feel up for it, you could try an intentional psychedelic practice, something like that, that calms your logical, rational mind and gives you access to this other form of knowing that actually can be quite wise, uh, that we don't give enough credence, in my opinion, in, in the current mainstream scientific model. Yes, I definitely agree with you. Um, I, as you know, I'm doing my MSc through the Aleph Trust, uh, where you're a lecturer. And last year in uh, the Approaches to Consciousness class, we were writing our final essay. And something I thought was really interesting is the professor encouraged us to include uh, perspectives that basically challenged the arguments we were trying to make that consciousness is fundamental. And it was this idea that if you show that you've explored the materialist or maybe cognitive explanations of whatever phenomenon you're talking about, that can help strengthen your argument. So I think it could be worth uh, briefly going over what are some of the cognitive and psychological explanations of of synchronicities. Yeah, it's a, it's a good point. And I agree. I think that in science, it should really be about dialogue, not about debate necessarily, like not about trying to shoot down someone else's opinion, but about dialogue between opinions. And in order to have a, an informed dialogue, you need to inform yourself about the other perspective. And from a, from a psychological or cognitive point of view, there's a few different versions of this when it comes to synchronicity. One approach is that synchronicities are a a meaningful cognitive strategy that people use to try to make sense of their lives. And I actually think that this is also true. So it's not that either consciousness is fundamental and there's all this psychic phenomenon going on, or it's just 
the brain and a mental and psychological factors. I think it's actually both. So I do think that there is a psychological component to synchronicity. Meaning is a hugely important aspect of human existence. And synchronicities provide us with a sense of meaning, uh, especially in situations that don't make sense. And there are psychological theoretical perspectives published in academic literature that, that argue for this. Um, and I think that there is credence to that. There's also arguments that synchronicity is simply random chance. So in other words, in a large enough population of seven something billion people, synchronicities are bound to occur uh, simply because strange things happen, random things happen if you have a large enough sample. And this is anyone who's taken a statistics class has learned about the this kind of probabilistic thinking. This line of argument, I also think, uh, has some value. I think that sometimes, yes, thing, weird things just happen. But on the other hand, I think that if you really were to sit down and calculate the probabilities of various synchronistic of events, the probability of them happening, it's so low. And across so many people who have experienced these types of events, to me, this suggests that something is going on. For example, if, if there was some brain phenomenon, I don't know what it would be. I'm not a neuroscientist, but let's just say there was some aspect of the frontal lobe that caused people to see I don't know, strange colors. And, and that was happening around the world to lots of different people at different times who were saying, oh, I see this strange color that doesn't exist on the, the actual light spectrum. Uh, probably scientists would start to be looking and be like, oh, wow. Oh, look, there is something going on. There's something in the frontal lobe here because such a large number of people are describing this phenomenon. But when it comes to synchronicity, because synchronicity doesn't fit so nicely into the materialist paradigm the way neuroscience does, people will just say, ah, oh, nah, it's random chance. It's random chance. And to me, it almost gets ridiculous um, when people start to say that certain things are random chance. I, I start to think like, wow, it, it, it's actually non-scientific in a way to not be open to certain perspectives. Like in my mind, there is something going on with synchronicity. Not always. Sometimes people are reaching for meaning where none exists. Sometimes strange things do happen. But there, I think over human history, there have been enough examples of really compelling synchronicities that suggest that there is something more going on. Yes. And um, I'm always shocked at how quick materialists um, jump to conclusions like, well, the researcher on that parapsychology study must have been fudging the numbers or there was an issue with the data like there must be some sort of other conclusion because they come to it with these assumptions um so I think this is a great place to transition into another article you've written which is about bias in evaluating parapsychology research um so I'd love to start with just defining what parapsychology means, because I think a lot of people hear the word para and they just associate it with paranormal activity and, you know, think of ghosts and, and things. So I'd love to hear what your definition of and what the standard definition of parapsychology is. Yeah, parapsychology um, generally can be categorized into two really broad 
categories. One used to be called ESP, or some people still do call it extrasensory perception. Um, Etzel Cardenia, who's one of the leading researchers on parapsychology, has started to call this category anomalous cognition. Uh, so in other words, it's, it's cognition that seems to violate standard current normative standards of space and time, for example. So this might be predicting something that happens in the future. So precognition, uh, it can even be retrocognition, predicting something that happened in the past without any knowledge of it. It can be things like telepathy, so somehow reading or knowing th thoughts or knowing someone else's thought process, for example. So anomalous cognition, in some ways, takes away a little bit of that far out aspect that ESP has gathered over the years and puts it in some ways into more of a standard academic psychological language by, I think, using the word cognition and that it's just anomalous. It's something slightly different that we're not quite used to. Uh, and then there's psychokinesis, which involves the impact of mental events on physical events. So for example, when uh, people seem to be able to perhaps control a random number generator mentally and make it not random anymore. That would be an example of micro-PK uh, or micro-psychokinesis. Uh, so it, it's not necessarily as far out as some people might think. It's, it's just aspects of our psychology or our cognition that are not explainable by current not known knowledge of laws of space and time, for example. Mm, thank you. That was a really good definition. Um, and what did you explore in your article where you researched the bias in evaluating this parapsychology research? Well, what I was curious about, the, this article came about because I noticed when I was teaching a class that included a lecture about parapsychology in a mainstream university that my students were often very skeptical before they would even read the article. Uh, I would often I would I would give them Etzel Cardenia's 2018 uh, meta-analytic article on parapsychology to read because it's it's one of the most recent and well done summaries of existing research on parapsychology. And two students could read the exact same article, and one who was a size skeptic would say, ah, no, it's garbage. And then a student who was more open to size would say, wow, this is really interesting. I think there's something legitimate going on here. And so I designed this study where I actually took the numbers from Etzel Cardenia's study, and I wrote up a little study summary. I wrote two study summaries. One was literally just describing the results of his study, of his meta-analysis, suggesting that parapsychological phenomenon do show up. Uh, they have significant effects and the effect sizes are small, but statistically significant. And then I took the exact same numbers and, and wording, except I just, I changed for the second study summary, I changed it so that it was talking about a neuroscience study. It was talking about episodic memory in the hippocampus. And but all the numbers, like I said, everything was the same. The wording was the same, the paragraph structure. It's just that one study summary talked about the results as if they were from a parapsychology study, and the other summary talked about the results as if they were a neuroscience study. And I had 100 participants who had a background in psychology, so starting at the undergraduate level up until full professors. I asked, they were randomly assigned to rate 
one of the two summaries. And they rated the summaries on, for example, uh, how strong they thought the results were, how reliable, how valid, et cetera. And what I found is that people rated the neuroscience study as being uh, stronger results as being reliable, more reliable and being more valid than the parapsychological study summary, even though the two study summaries were essentially identical. And so this suggests that there is a bias going on that we, and it's a confirmation bias of sorts, that we tend to agree with results that support what we believe. Uh, and we tend to think the results aren't as strong if they do not support what we believe. And so that was that study. And again, getting to what I was talking about earlier, it's it focuses on this meta science aspect that how we look at results as scientists is really important. You were talking earlier about assumptions, and we all come to science. We all come to research with assumptions, whether they're materialist or some other assumption. And we just have to be aware of those uh, in, in our work. Where do you think the like predominant materialist worldview comes from? Like, is it something we're taught in schools? It seems like it's almost like an invisible assumption. Like it's something in the, the air that we breathe without realizing it's there. And I, I certainly had it when I was younger without realizing um but yeah where do you where do you think it comes from where where does it get like instilled into us i think that like most things it it actually materialism started from a quote-unquote good place or a noble cause from it's from back when you know before our existence before we were alive but uh when church was dominating uh, you know, religion was dominating society and, and science started to rise up. What we think of as modern materialist science of, of looking at objective facts, not thinking about or, or basing our lives on, on non-seeable entities like gods and goddesses that exist in some other realm, but actually basing our lives on what is here and now and observable and measurable. And 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 the church, various forms of churches in in various traditions, uh, in some ways did some damage uh, to to society. Uh, you know, you could think about the Christian Reform reformations and things like that. So science came in with a noble cause, and and it's permeated our our lives since then, uh, and and also as a way to predict and control. That is one of the, the goals of modern science is to be able to predict our universe and control it in some ways if we want to. So a lot of the luxuries that we experience today, like clean water and heat and lighting, are because we've harnessed and predicted and be able to control various aspects of our world. And that's great. You know, I, I don't want, like, I enjoy my toilet and my lights and my heat. So I think that that's a, a wonderful outcome of materialism. It's just that the pendulum has swung too far so that now we're not even willing to look through the telescope, so to speak, in, in Galileo's terms or in Galileo's analogy, that the second you start to talk about spirituality or mysticism or parapsychology, anything, synchronicity, anything that, that is not observable uh, or measurable in the, in the traditional materialist way, people start to think that that you're just you're not scientific and and you are um, talking nonsense. But this has actually resulted in 
materialist scientists and, and the current scientific paradigm to actually be just as dogmatic as religion was back in the day. Um, you can think of people like Rupert Sheldrake, whose TED Talk was banned because the, the TED people thought that it was not scientific, even though it would, you know, people talk about all sorts of strange things on TED and they don't get their talks banned, but his was. Um, so there's there's really interesting thing going on where science has now become more dogmatic, I think, than religion was in, in previous times. Yes, definitely. And speaking of Rupert Sheldrake, it's interesting because if you look him up on Wikipedia, it calls him a pseudo-scientist. Um, and I know there's a group, they call themselves the guerrilla skeptics, and they make a point to go in. And, you know, if I was to go in today and remove that from Rupert Sheldrake's Wikipedia page, they would go back and re-add pseudo into the description. So there's some people who are really not willing to be open-minded at all. Exactly, exactly. And I think that's actually like dangerous. Like that's actually a form of, it's the most non-scientific thing, like to go in and change someone's description of themselves. Mm. Um, you're not even allowing free speech in some ways. So I find that like really disturbing. <laughs> yeah. I'm so curious if you often find yourself in discussions with materialists, because this is something that I personally struggle with quite a lot. Um, I feel like whenever I am talking to, you know, friends who are materialists, they always talk about what we call promissory materialism. You know, like we can't, we can't explain consciousness we can't explain how consciousness is generated from the brain right now, but that doesn't mean there's some fantastical, magical explanation for it. So they're really like tied to this belief system. And I, I really struggle on how to, um, I guess, even like open them up to a different perspective. And so I, I know that you work for like a mainstream university. So I'm, I'm wondering how often do you find yourself in these discussions uh, with materialists and how do you approach it? Yeah, I um, it, it's interesting. I find I tend to get sort of flustered as well. Like I'm just like, uh. <laughs> um, when when I'm and and it, I actually come across it a lot. I have a lot of students who are really really skeptical of things like parapsychology or, or transpersonal psychology. And what I try to do is to come at it from a way that almost like the way I was just describing it to you, where I will say that like, no, I, I do think that, that some of their points are valid, that, that neuroscience is important and, and has a point. And, and I, I, I try to remind them that good science, in my opinion, is actually about inhabiting a state of humble, not knowing. And, and in the sense that, Many things, especially within psychology and, and neuroscience, have not been 100% proven. In many ways, a lot of science within the social sciences, at least, is, is not even about proving. <laughs> um, it's about exploration. And so I try to actually frame it as, at least with my students, that I'm trying to help them become a better scientist. Because if they're going to be skeptical about something, they need to be an informed skeptic as opposed to an uninformed skeptic. So in other words, if you think parapsychology is garbage, you need to read this article by Edsel Cardenia and you need to explain to me in scientific terms why it's garbage. You need to find holes in his methodology. You need to critique his data analysis. Um, you can't just say that 
that these things don't exist if you haven't informed yourself about them. So I, I try to kind of approach it from that perspective. And, and then if, you know, if the person still kind of won't budge, I, I try to approach it as, you know, can we both just agree that we don't know a hundred percent, like you might be right. I might be right. We don't know. I personally think there's more going on here. Uh, and by more going on, I don't mean magic. Uh, I mean that science over history has never had it a hundred percent right. So we figure things out over time. And so for us to think that right now we have it all figured out and we know for sure that the brain causes consciousness, we don't know that for sure. Um, we just don't yet. Uh, and for us to assume that we do, I think is actually bad science. Uh, and it involves not being as open-minded as we could be. So taking this out to more of a, a bigger picture, what do you think are the implications um, if it's true that consciousness is the fundamental nature of reality? Like, how do you think that might change our perception of the world and like the decisions we make as a society and as a culture? Um, like, why, why does it matter if consciousness is fundamental? Well, I think that if there is some underlying governing intelligence, again, I don't mean God, but I mean like a a force or a field in the same way that we think of gravity or, or space or time or electromagnetic fields as being fundamental in some way to our reality. If there is some sentient or conscious underlying aspect of reality, in other words, if there is some oneness that we're all part of, it suggests that we are much more interconnected than what the materialist paradigm would suggest. And that if we are, and not just interconnected to each other, but interconnected to the earth, to animals, to the solar system, to everything. And if that really is the case, then it, it has massive ethical and moral implications in terms of how we treat each other, how we treat animals, how we treat the planet. And by recognizing that there's this interconnection, we can perhaps treat each other and the earth with more respect and, and therefore make it a better place to live for ourselves and for future generations as well. Oh, so beautifully said, Bethany. Um, so the last question I want to ask you is um, if people want to find out more about you and your work, um, where should we point them? Yeah, so you can go to um, my website. It's just my name, bethanybutzer.com. And I'm also on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, it's just at Bethany Butzer for Instagram. Facebook is um, at Bethany Butzer PhD with a PhD at the end. And I, you can also on Google Scholar, like you can, my name is pretty unique. There's not very many Bethany Butzers in the world. So if you put my name into Google Scholar, you can usually find my various publications that I've done, um, including the, the two articles that we've been talking about today. Wonderful. Well, on that note, I'll draw our conversation to a close. Thank you so much for taking the time. Um, you're so articulate in talking about the subject and I really, really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Oh, my pleasure, Kaz. It was really enjoyable. I always like talking about these topics, so I appreciate you making the time. Well, that's it for this podcast. Thank you so much for listening. 
I would like to give a call out to my dear friend Zachary Walter, who composed the amazing music for this podcast. So if you want to hear more about him and his music, check out his website. It is ZacharyWalterMusic.com. Okay, I'll see you on the next episode. Bye for now.